Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Day four, show 94 in the offseason. Day four of our six-day tour into season win totals, sports betting, and whatever you might be able to pull out of that on the fantasy side. Although, again, that's not really what we're hunting for right now. I was informed by a very happy listener that I don't need... That's uh, Joby, I think, on Twitter. What's up, Joby? That I don't need to apologize for the fact that I'm not talking about fantasy for six days. But I actually think I do. So apologies again, everybody. But you know what? Here's the thing. Long and short of it is... We do, what, how many weekdays are there in a year? About 260, something like that. They do 254 of those on fantasy stuff, for the most part, or there is fantasy in 254 of them. Sometimes we dabble in sports betting throughout the playoffs. We did a bunch of it. So, you know, I don't feel too bad about it. Six out of 260. But fear not. Yahoo's got those ADP numbers a-coming. We got plenty of other stuff to talk about. Uh, And, of course, boy, as soon as those come out, we can start doing some mock drafts. It's about to get real thick and heavy on the draft stuff around these here parts. We moved to the Eastern Conference today, covered the Western Conference Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and we found some really good stuff in the Pacific Division, and then a little smattering of things across the Northwest and Southwest, inappropriately named division. Now we go to the Southeast, which I might argue of the division so far is, well, I'm going to say it's the toughest to handicap, but it just feels like we're being led the most in the Southeast division. We'll start at the top, and we'll work our way down the board the way we have been each of the last three days. Team with the highest season win total mark and then on down to the lowest the Miami Heat 48 and a half last year we creamed the Miami Heat over just went all in on it smashed it to pieces because they were another team that got brutalized by COVID it was another one of those teams where everything that could go wrong did go wrong and they were still pretty good so the number was just simply too low when you extended the season to 82 games I would argue that this last season, a lot of the stuff that could have gone wrong went wrong again. And still, the Heat went flying past their season win total mark. And yet somehow, and this is another one where I feel like I'm being tricked, the number is four and a half wins lower than where they finished up last year at 53 and 29. The Heat did a lot of their damage at home. Seems to be a pretty consistent theme with Miami. Visiting teams take their talents to South Beach. The talents sometimes get lost on South Beach. They were fine on the road, 24-17, and 17, which was tied with a bunch of other teams in the Eastern Conference. That's fine. It's nothing special. But the Heat, this is the real key, missed 25 games of Jimmy Butler last year. He missed almost a third of the season. And Bam Adebayo missed 26 games last year. Almost a third of the season. A little bit under the net. Third of the season is about 27. About. 
I don't know about Jimmy. I mean, Jimmy Butler seems like he's going to miss about 20 ball games every year. If he somehow squeezes a little bit above that mark, that's swell. You know, he's a guy who generally beats his mark on a per-game basis and then generally kind of slots in a little behind that by totals. Sometimes the totals number actually beats ADP also, but that was not the case this last year. 25 games was just simply too many for him to overcome. Because his per game was very good, but not hyper elite like we've seen in the past. Steals were at 1.6 instead of 2. Field goal percent was at 48 instead of 49 or 50. 21, 6, and 5.5 and is fine, but a little bit of the scoring load's been taken off. Although he never was really expected to score much more than 20 in Miami. So, fine. If you handicap this year, slot Jimmy Butler in for maybe a couple additional games. But you could just conservatively say he still misses 25 again. Fine. But Adebayo, I don't think, misses 26 games again. He dealt with one big thing last year, and then kind of went back to Bam Adebayo stuff. Whenever he was available, he played. And he got better as the year went on, settling in alongside Butler and Lowry and Hero and finding what his role is on a team that now went from basically having one ball handler in Butler, distributor, to having Lowry, who's... Uh, primary goal was distribution. And then Tyler Harrow, who's also kind of stepped up his usage, took 17 shots a game this last year, which left Bam with just 13 shots a night. Still averaged 19 and 10, three and a half assists. You like that? 1.4 steals, 0.8 blocks. All that stuff is pretty good on the Bam front. But the missed games were new. So let's assume, I think we can safely assume Adebayo plays in more games than he did this last year. Kyle Lowry, who knows, that's a pretty reasonable target. Tyler Hero, fine, whatever, you don't have to change things too much there. Elsewhere, I don't know that you have to worry too much about the Heat, because they just have this fantastic built-in culture of developing players. Max Struess will get better, Victor Oladipo re-signed, and he is exclaiming that he's you know, still an all-star. I'll believe that when I see it, but... If he really is kind of getting back to reasonable health, that's another weapon for the Heat, potentially. Low-tier weapon, but a weapon. So I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm not getting tricked by the number. I'm going to say screw you to the number and say over on Miami because it really does feel like even if we think certain things kind of regress a little bit, like maybe they don't win as many tight ball games this coming year, or uh, maybe... Kyle Lowry misses more time, or Hero misses more time, or Butler even misses more time. Just having Adebayo back for more and having Oladipo back at some better facsimile of what he used to be should kind of counterbalance that. The Atlanta Hawks are another one where I feel like I'm being tricked a little bit because 46.5 on a team that just picked up DeJounte Murray feels pretty attainable as well. However, the Hawks won just 43 games last year, went 43-39, and and you guys know enough about me to know, and remember we talked about this at great length on the Rudy Gobert front, but that one went a little bit of a different direction. When a team adds a star to the roster, I tend to lean to the under on season win total marks. And here's why that's, I think, an important distinction. I mentioned it kind of in passing on Gobert, but then we sort of chucked it aside because he's a low usage star that got added to a team. The reason I I want to talk about this phenomenon, 
when people hear that you're going under on a team with a new star, the initial, the, that first gut reaction is to think that somebody is fading the team's actual performance. But that's not it. What we're fading is a line over adjustment. Meaning, when a key player goes to a new team, the season win total reflects the team with that new player. I don't know why this is such a hard thing for a lot of more novice bettors to wrap their head around, but there's something weird about trying to, to envision that the line has already moved. I can say it a million times, and a million times it'll make perfect sense, but when you stop and you just sort of digest that first piece of information, someone's like, oh, DeJounte Murray's on this team. They're going to be good. They're going to be better. They should go over. But the line has already moved. And the line tends to move a certain amount based on the actual power ranking of the team and how their talent might stack up with this, the new superstar. But it also tends to move a little bit farther than that, typically, because odds makers, bookies, whatever, are also accounting for likely a few extra dollars coming with the star player. People are going to bet the over because they like to see new star teammates win. Now, the reason I still liked, or I still wasn't as worried, I guess I should say, on the Rudy Gobert front, is because he doesn't need the basketball in his hands. They can build an offense and a defense around him. Defensively, they would build a defense on him. That's a different discussion altogether. But offensively, they're like, look, we'll just stick you in there as kind of a classic center, and we'll come up with tried and true schemes to get you involved, and then we'll complicate things as the season goes on. We'll add stuff. It's very different when you add a ball-handling star to a team. And I don't, whatever, you can call DeJounte Murray a star. I don't, I don't care what you... He was great last year. He's a high-usage guy. Whatever definition of star you want to use, he's a high-usage guy. That's a very different scenario because you can't just be like, hey, you, go set some screens and roll to the rim on someone that you're expecting to run your offense some, you know, 35% of the time. So there's going to be a massive learning curve with DeJounte in a new place. Massive. There will be long stretches for Atlanta where Trey Young just takes over. And that's when Atlanta will sort of seem like themselves. Although even in those, Murray's going to be a little bit like a fish out of water. Because he's not a floor spacer. So it's not like you can just post him up in the corner like a typical shooting guard next to Trey Young. They're going to have to figure out where he fits. And then they're going to have to incorporate him. And then defensively, where he probably makes them better than they were, that's also going to be a focal point. Where do you stick him? How, does he, you know, how do they deal with whatever rotations and changes? I still think offensively there will be uh, more hiccups with defense. It's like if you have a big lot of roster turnover, that's really hard on defense. But one guy, I think they'll figure that out a little quicker. But offensively, it's going to take probably 20 to 25 games for the Hawks to really figure out where Murray makes the most sense. And that's all it takes for a team to go under. You know, if they had not brought in Murray, the first, I didn't look at the Hawks' schedule, but the first 25 games, if they went something like, you know, 14 and 11, that would put them uh, pretty much on pace to, to get to their marker. But let's say with Murray around... They're figuring things out, they're adjusting, and they go 12 and 13. They 
lose two games that they would have won. They're a game under 500 at that point. They need to get to 47 wins. What did I just say they were? They had 12, so they need 35 wins the rest of the way in the remaining 57 ball games. 35 and 22, is that what I just did? It's doable, but it makes it a lot, a lot harder. So I went under on the Hawks, not because, again, not because I don't think they're going to be better. I think they'll be much better right at the front end of the playoffs than they would have been without Murray, but I think they're going to be worse at the start of the year as they... You know, Kevin Herter was a nice floor spacing, kind of ball handling, lower usage guy that they got a slot in. They're still bugged on Bogdanovich on the team, and so there was kind of a repeating thing. Yes, Murray makes them better. There's absolutely no question about it. But he makes them better. He raises their ceiling as they all get used to each other. And that's the really important part to keep in mind because that doesn't happen overnight. Teams that had a ball handling superstar very rarely go over their season win total. It's really hard to do unless the fit is just beautiful, like LeBron and AD, because AD didn't need to be the orchestrator on that team. It has to be a fit where one guy isn't taking the ball away from the other guy. Sure, maybe they can finish some more plays for him, but the one guy that had the ball needs to keep having it, or it's going to take a bunch of time, even if it ultimately makes the team better. This next one was one of the toughest ones, I think, on the entire bar. The Charlotte Hornets, super tricky number, 36 and a half on a team that won 43 games last year. That's a lot lower. And it feels like almost all of that adjustment is Miles Bridges related. But I don't think that that's actually the case. I think some of it is maybe three, four wins for Miles Bridges, which actually still feels like kind of a lot, but let's like let's give him a really big number and screw it, say three or four. Why the other adjustment down for the Hornets, who've been sort of steadily getting better for the last couple of years? They've got LaMelo Ball. He's amazing. Fantastic young ball player. Terry Rozier has been outstanding for the Hornets. Gordon Hayward is getting old, but, you know, he, he fits a pretty good role on that team of orchestrator, guy that can just kind of quietly do a lot of stuff, shoot efficiently, make free throws, pass, etc. And yeah, now they got a hole of power forward that they didn't have before, and they didn't really have good centers previously anyway, so that doesn't change much. P.J. Washington, you hope, continues to get a little bit better. I think this number got adjusted down... Because of the coaching change. I know that maybe I'm maybe I'm being too hard here, but it feels like the Hornets were on the cusp of moving in the right direction, which was leaning into the talent they had. And instead they've kind of gone back to this like Steve Clifford seems fine, I guess, but he's more of a defensive-minded coach. I don't know that he's the best mentor for LaMelo Ball. He seems like a perfectly nice guy, but I don't really get it. Like, if it was Mike D'Antoni, I might have said, oh, cool, this team's going to run dudes out of the gym. It feels like, and this is absolutely not at all fair to Steve Clifford, but it feels like 
instead of embracing what they are, they're trying to force things on their personnel that don't make sense. Kind of like the Sacramento Kings did under Luke Walton. They brought Luke in. They said, teach these guys how to slow it down and play defense and run weird half-court sets that just never worked. Clifford will undoubtedly make better uh, small individual decisions than Walton did, but it's that same, at least to me it feels like, kind of a square peg round hole situation that I don't know that the Hornets can overcome. So for that reason, I'm going with the number. I'm going to let the number lead me in the direction, and I'm going under. I think the Hornets lose a lot of tight ball games. I think they're a little more herky-jerk this year on offense. At some point, I mean, there'll be plenty of points in a game where LaMelo is just like, all right, I'm just going to take over. This is me. I got this. But I don't know. I just feel like the identity got a little bit mishmashed. I would love it if they made a trade before the season. I don't know how they do because they don't really know what's going on with Miles Bridges yet. We have a pretty good idea, but can't really know for sure, I suppose. But man, if they have an opportunity to go get a star and put it on that team, yeah, obviously that changes a lot. And then the underbet here looks terrible because the season win total will jump way up and then we would have wanted the under, I guess, but it'll be the wrong number. Whatever. Let's keep moving along. The Washington Wizards, 35 and a half the number, just one game lower than the Charlotte Hornets, even though the Wizards were eight games behind the Hornets last year. But here's the thing. The Wizards actually got to 35 wins with a full week to go in the regular season and then lost the last three playing the ragtag bunch. They didn't play any of their guys down the stretch, and it was fine. Like, you could locate value in Rui Hachimura for a week. But the Wizards were actually 35-44 and 44 going into the final week of the season. Then they lost three in a row and ended 35-47. and 47. This number of 35-and-a-half is very reachable for a Wizards team that was only a half game lower than that last year. This, to me, feels like a number that odds makers could set knowing that people don't really know much about the Wizards, and that's okay. They'll split the take just based on people looking at last year and saying, oh, the Wizards were a 35-win team. Great. But we didn't get to see the Wizards at full strength. They won a few bunch of games early in the season that they kind of had no business winning, which does make me a little nervous about leaning over on Washington. But also, they'll win some games this year that they do have business winning because they've got Bradley Beal back. Kristaps Porzingis will at least start the season healthy, and he'll miss his normal complement of games. They brought in Monty Morris from Denver in the very rare everybody wins trade because the Nuggets got KCP. Nice uh, supplementary piece for all their scorers. And the Wizards got another ball handler that can help initiate things beside Bradley Beal that isn't, you know, Ish Smith. So Monty Morris can actually spread the floor a little bit. Makes more sense among whatever the Wizards are trying to do. And he's certainly got more skill than Raul Neto, who's... Been in and out of there. I think he might be in Cleveland now. I don't know where the hell he ended up. Is that right? Cleveland? Doesn't matter. Wizards uh, have Kyle Kuzma. He was a little bit better last year than expected, so that's still a thing. They've got the backup power forward in Rui Hachimura. That's well set. They've got Daniel Gafford backing up Christoph Persinga, so they have a little bit of depth there as well. If Bradley Beal comes out and plays half-decent basketball this coming year, the Wizards should be competitive for the 10 seed in the Eastern Conference, which you also like. By the way, that's a reason that I am a little bit afraid of the Hornets over. Feels to me 
like the Hornets might think they're competing for that 10 seed. So we need Charlotte to actually be about four or five games out with like two weeks to go, and then they can kind of give up a little bit. We need the Wizards to be like two games out or in it, frankly, where they'd have to fend someone off to hold on to the 10 seed. And then you get Washington picking up a win the final week of the season where they didn't do this last year. And maybe that then pushes them to 36 or 37. But I like the Wizards to take a tiny step forward. I know Porzingis is a huge injury risk, and I mean, he'll he'll miss time. That's just the way it is. But overall, I like the way their roster situated better this year than last. My only hope is that they let them play a little offense, because last year it was so laser-focused on defense. The games were ugly and slow, and they were able to grind out some wins because of it early in the year, but it also made their games really tough to watch. And then when Beal went down, the games got rough. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, we don't have to talk about that. Finally, the Orlando Magic. This is another tough one. Their number was 25 and a half this year, which is the fourth lowest number on the board. And a team that won 22 games last year and tanked their way to the number one overall pick in Paolo Banchero. Here's why I think the Magic actually squeak over that number. First of all, I would like to see Jonathan Isaac at some point again. I have no idea if he even exists. I think I tweeted that he had dematerialized and was just dancing in that one room on the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. We've heard, not, we've heard neither hide nor hair of Jonathan Isaac in damn near two calendar years now. Remember, he got hurt in the bubble, so it's been two years where the hell is that dude did he just like ruin his relationship with everybody in the clubhouse so bad that they don't even want him back even when he's healthy that's the best thing i can think because ain't nobody need two years to heal from anything unless it's a mental thing now which it very well could be i think if we handicap the orlando magic we have to go into the year assuming jonathan isaac is not playing because if he shows up at this point, it's just a, it's sorcery. And he might. He might show up. I don't know. I mean, this is Orlando. There's a reason we haven't heard anything. is because nobody's really talking about anything other than Banchero. But they should be. Because the Magic actually have a whole bunch of really interesting young guys and some dudes they brought back. Wendell Carter Jr., Mobamba. They have a nice front court locked in. Franz Wagner was a very nice wing. That was in the mix for Rookie of the Year last year. Never really had a true chance at it. They have three very good point guards, actually, on the Magic. One of them, Markel Fultz, could be the reason that they go over this number. And then, of course, Bonchero now, who's likely to be an NBA difference maker, I think pretty quickly, actually. You know, number one overall picks tend to be pretty relevant. Cole Anthony, uh, he's one of the other point guards I was talking about. They got Chumo Kiki. I forgot about him. I think they brought Gary Harris back, too. So, I think I mentioned this on yesterday's podcast. It's hard for me to remember sometimes. But I really don't think that the tank this year, even though I think more teams might be trying to lose, like, you know, this last year, well, maybe it turns out to be about around roughly the same number, this last year was the Magic, the Pistons, 
At some point along the way, it was the Pacers. They almost caught the other teams in terribleness. The Rockets and the Thunder were the teams that were tanking from the outset. And the latecomers were the Pacers and the Blazers in Tank Fest. So it was four real tanks and then six late tanks. And this coming year, you know, the Thunder, the Rockets, the Spurs are probably all going to start the year in mostly a tank posture. And in the Eastern Conference, the Pistons will probably start the year in a tank posture. I'm guessing the Pacers will at least, I think they'll start the year tanking. We'll see what happens with Miles Turner and Buddy Heald. That, that'll play a role. So it's probably those five starting the year in a true tank posture. And the Magic are kind of the question mark because they probably should tank again because it's not like they're a playoff team yet. But at the same time, they might feel like they have enough young core to start learning how to win together. Okay, we got the number one pick. We got what we were trying to get by tanking. Maybe we don't need to tank again. Let's let Paolo learn. Let's have Fultz come back, run things, get Paolo in the mix. We got two really good big men. Why not try to win 27, 28 ball games and just start the climb? Get to the end of the year and go, hey, guys, we were six, seven games better than we were last season. This is a really nice start. Let's keep getting better. Uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of cap space here. Maybe somebody wants to join some interesting young players. Who knows? The Magic, I think, are the one team among the bad teams in the NBA because they still lose a lot of ball games. They're kind of the one team down there where I'm really not sure whether they are going to try to win or not. Again, from a franchise standpoint, it makes sense to tank at least one more year because it worked, so it might work again. And then you get a franchise changer, and then you get a couple of amazing players in the draft, and then you're off and run. But at the same time, they might pull a little bit of a semi-tank. You might get some pre-tank, you might get some late, like, but it might not be the whole way through. It's part of the reason why we talked about the Rockets and, the, and San Antonio. That was, those are the teams that brought this, this conversation up yesterday. The Rockets and the Spurs are going to try to lose games, but they're just a little bit better than the awful teams last year, including the Rockets. The Rockets are better than the Rockets were. So the bottom teams in the NBA this year, even though there still might be five or six or even seven teams trying to lose ballgames towards the end of the season, I really think the bottom teams are not 20, 22, and 23 wins. I think, well, you know, let's say the Pacers only get to 21. But I think the other ones are all going to be around 24. And so for the Magic... I went over 25 and a half, which again is a, it, that's a reach, but it's not that hard to win 26 ball games. The Blazers tried to lose games almost the entire year and they won 27. They lost their last 11 in a row. The Pacers lost their last 10 in a row and they still got to 25. But that's the thing. Those teams were trying to get down with the 22 win teams and they had to lose everything to get there. If it looks like everybody's on pace for about 24, you might see teams just start losing at 24 or 25. So then all you got to do is accidentally roll into one win and you've gone over the mark. I don't, this one's a, this one's a terrifying one because if the magic come out and they're like, oh, by the way, full tank mode, then yeah, this one's doomed. But if they really do, like, it seems like they'll try October, November, December, January, even maybe, that's a lot of months. They could rattle off four or five wins a month in there, coming to February with like 21 wins already. 
That's doable, man. February, which is that kind of a half month, March, half of April. Can you get like six more wins, even if you're tanking? Eh, maybe. There's your Southwest. I enjoy this crap. I don't know. Some of you guys don't. It is what it is. Uh, Central or, or Atlantic tomorrow? I don't know. Flip a coin. Probably go Central and just kind of move. Start, hit the Eastern Seaboard. We're looping around. I don't know. Maybe we'll spiral our way into the Central and do it on Monday. Who knows? Maybe we'll go to Bed Bath & Beyond. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Fantasy NBA Today, off-season show 94. Have a great Thursday. I am Dan Bespris. I don't even know if I introduced myself. Doesn't matter. At Dan Bespris on the Twitters. D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. We will talk to you soon. Maybe even over there on social. All right. Later for now.